Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Just a warning, this episode contains some descriptions of violence, including sexual violence, that won't be suitable for everyone. We begin in 1869, in the midst of the Red River resistance. That's Jean Taie. She's an indigenous rights lawyer and the author of The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people and the Métis Nation. In 1869, Canada is only two years old. And in the Red River settlement, which is pretty much modern-day Winnipeg, change is coming. Canada just bought this land from the Hudson's Bay Company, The only problem is, the people who actually live on that land, they weren't asked what they wanted. The Métis and their leader, Louis Riel, try to get the Canadian government to negotiate. While the Métis in Red River were trying to figure out on what terms they wanted to enter Canada, Prime Minister Sir Johnny Macdonald was amassing an army to send out to put down the resistance. Riel is fiercely intelligent and charismatic, and while he doesn't want the situation to turn violent, he is willing to take up arms to defend his people's rights. I described Louis Riel as like a comet. He was fiery, but he was also scholarly and erudite and philosophical. And this is where I should probably mention that Louis Riel is actually Jean Taillet's great-granduncle. Within a matter of months, the Métis in Canada come to an agreement. A new province called Manitoba will be created, and over a million acres of land will be set aside for the Métis. 
the Métis put their guns away and prepare for their new future in Canada. Now, maybe you learned about Louis Riel and the Red River Resistance in high school, but I can pretty much guarantee that they didn't teach you about what happened next. Prime Minister John A. Macdonald puts together a force of a thousand men. Its ostensible purpose is to pacify the region. You also have to remember, there's nothing violent going on in Red River, right? Everything's peaceful. There's no need for a violent army to come in and take over the town. Two-thirds of the recruits are members in something called the Orange Lodge. The Orange Lodge is a secret society. It's still around today, but back then, this was the single most powerful political force in the country. And their goal was to turn Canada into a refuge for exclusively white, English-speaking Protestants. So this is a white supremacist organization. They hated French people, they hated Catholic people, and they particularly hated the Métis, because the Métis were too French, too Catholic, and too Indian. So sort of had three strikes against them. John A. Macdonald is a member. And like I said, so are two-thirds of the men he's sending over to quote-unquote pacify Manitoba. They had taken a vow to wipe out the Métis. After a grueling journey, the force arrives. They murder nine men. They gang-rape women. They burn down houses. The Canadian Expeditionary Force unleashes carnage on the people of Red River. The violence gets so bad that within a few weeks, the Minneapolis press is calling it a reign of terror. Not so long after, the New York Times does the same. Now, this is the Wild West, right? So for a newspaper to call something a reign of terror in those days, that means it's bad. It lasts for two years. In that time, thousands of Métis are forced to flee. It's really important to note that MacDonald knew all about it, and he did absolutely nothing, despite the murders, despite the violence. So once this force is dissolved, what happens to these men? Their engagement is over. And then what happens is MacDonald just converted them into the police. So these guys who came out with a mission to exterminate 10,000 people, that's what they were going to do, get rid of 10,000 people. That's who then became the police. And many of the men went on to become senior law enforcement. John Ingram was a member of this expeditionary force who was convicted of nearly beating to death a French Catholic named Joseph Dubuque. And he became the first chief of the Winnipeg police in 1874. Francis Cornish invaded the home of Louis Riel's family and put a gun to his sister's head to try to get her to tell him where Riel was hiding. Francis Cornish became the first Crown Prosecutor and then he became Winnipeg's first mayor. And then there's Colonel S.P. Jarvis. Jarvis's men raped a 17-year-old girl named Laurette Goulet. And this was after her father had already been killed by other soldiers during a home invasion. And the Métis went en masse to Colonel Jarvis. And the soldiers had been identified. It was known who did it. There were eyewitnesses. Colonel Jarvis said, and I'm pretty much quoting him here, he said, it's none of my business. So 
That's the beginnings of policing for Indigenous women, is none of my business. That's the beginnings of policing in the Northwest, and those root ideas are still there today. They started there, they're embedded in the very cement foundation. The Red River pogrom is not an isolated incident. Similar horrors will befall Indigenous peoples across the plains over and over again. And at the center of so many of these tragedies are the men who would go on to become the most powerful police force in this country. The RCMP is one of the most famous police forces in the world. The Red Surge and Stetson Hat are practically synonymous with Canada. But that obscures the profound power the Mounties have held throughout Canadian history and the dark legacy of ethnic cleansing and genocide at their core. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Over the last year, the RCMP's conduct against Indigenous peoples has once again come under fire across the country. The force spent more than $13 million policing Wet'suwet'en territory in northern BC, employing military-style units against unarmed protesters. Police, stay calm. This area is now part of the police exclusion zone. If you refuse to depart the area, you will be arrested for obstruction. An RCMP officer was caught on film brutally assaulting Chief Alan Adam of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. And just this month, the force stood by while a mob of commercial fishermen attacked Mi'kmaq men trying to exercise their constitutional rights to fish lobster. The problem was never, there's not enough RCMP on the ground. There was lots of them. You see them in all the videos. It's just that they're not doing anything. All of this clashes with the heroic images of the Mounties that we were taught in school. The RCMP is like no other police force in the entire world. Every Mountie must be more than an expert policeman. His moral turpitude must evolve from the fact that he is a God-fearing man and a solid citizen too. With a deep respect for the public, he is sworn to protect. I think that that popular mythology about the Mountie kind of clashes with the reality of the force and how the force has been used. That's Sean Carlton, a member of the Department of History and Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. So the Mounties, in short, were created to serve and protect the colonial status quo. If we're going to try to come to grips with policing in this country... We need to grapple with its origins, to understand the explicit purpose behind the creation of these institutions. And in the case of the RCMP, we can trace that back to the years immediately after Confederation. Canada is only six years old. The settler population was not very large, and Canada did not have its own independent military. But like the United States, Canada had ambitions of Western expansion, and the Red River resistance led in part by Louis Riel in 1869-1870, showed Canada that Indigenous peoples were a force to be reckoned with, with their own military. Step one was to send in that Canadian expeditionary force to terrorize the Métis, as well as other Indigenous people, Francophones, and Catholics. 
But MacDonald knew that he would need a more permanent presence in order to extend Canadian influence into all of these newly acquired lands. These were territories inhabited by the Métis, the Blackfoot, the Cree, the Ojibwe, the Assiniboine, the Inuit, and many other peoples. MacDonald had a plan to change that. He wanted to settle the plains with white, English-speaking Protestants who would farm the land. He wanted to build a railroad to lay claim to everything between Ontario and the Pacific and expand the prestige of the British Empire. And he wanted to cash in. That's an essential aspect of all of this. MacDonald was one hell of a corrupt politician. The settlement and development of the Plains was intended to enrich his allies. But in order to accomplish all of this, he needed a police force. So in 1873, the Northwest Mounted Police, the precursor to the RCMP, was formed. Its ostensible purpose was to bring in law and order to these new parts of Canada. Bringing law and order sounds a lot better than using this newly created paramilitary as muscle to kind of pave the way for Western expansion. To say that they were, they were used to bring law and order to the West is not untrue. It just hides the political motivations for doing so in the 1870s that were really about expanding Canada's colonial control of that region and its resources. MacDonald modeled the Mounties on other colonial police forces, especially the Royal Irish Constabulary. Ireland was Britain's first settler colonial target, and tactics used against the Irish were often replicated across the rest of the British Empire. And that was true in Canada as well. Shortly after the Northwest Mounted Police were created, a horrific event would put them into action for the first time. Cypress Hills was a restive part of the prairies where modern-day Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Montana all met. And during this time, it was home to a destructive whiskey trade run by predatory Americans. Here's Jean Taillet again. Don't think for a moment, classify it with the kind of whiskey we talk about today that you can get at the liquor store. This is rot gut poison. It's got everything in it from nails to blood to arsenic. It's horrible, 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 blinding stuff. And one day, several horses belonging to the American whiskey traders are stolen. They blame a local Cree community for the theft. And so they come streaming up into Cypress Hills and they massacre a whole camp of Cree. Now, the Cree men are primarily out buffalo hunting so what the camp is, is old people, children, and women. And they just massacre them. Over 20 people were slaughtered. The news made its way back to eastern Canada. And while the murders were alarming to the powers in Ottawa, what frightened them most was the encroachment of Americans onto the newly acquired Canadian territory. So MacDonald dispatched his shiny new police force to deal with the situation. He uses the Cypress Hills Massacre as justification for actually marching the Northwest Mounted Police out west as part of the process of extending colonial control. The Great March to Cypress Hills is the stuff of RCMP legend. It's been portrayed in films and reenacted numerous times. July 8th, 1874, 5 p.m. 
the great march to establish Canadian sovereignty in the West begins. But in reality, there was little glory in this trek. It's a disaster from day one. So first of all, they come with horses, which are used to living in barns in Ontario and fancy food. And then they try to feed them the hay and everything from out west. And so a lot of their horses die and they get lost. Now, that's always fascinating to me that they get lost. I mean, really, you just got to walk west. <laughs> you know, like, that's all you have to do is go west. And it's flatland prairie, man. How do you get lost? But they got lost, and they were hungry, and their men were complaining. It's a disaster. They were able to get the help of a Métis tracker who could lead them across the land. He finally gets them straight, and they get out to Cypress Hills. And where's the first place they go? They go to a Métis camp, and they try to enlist Métis guides. And the Métis are really not keen on helping them. And that's the beginnings of the Northwest Mounted Police. The story of Cypress Hills has become the central founding myth for the Mounties, that the force was created to protect Indigenous peoples in Canada from marauding Americans. But that's just not true. From the beginning, the police were intended to impose Canadian control over the plains and to subjugate the Indigenous peoples who had lived there since time immemorial. The 15 years between 1870 and 1885 is a really important time in in Canadian colonialism, because you start to see the Canadian government and the state apparatus become more powerful. They become more hungry. They become more willing to use force to kind of construct this new nation. The Plains were in a state of flux at this time. Métis were leaving Manitoba and moving west because of the intense repression by Canada. The bison, which fed the Plains people, was being exterminated by disease and deliberate overhunting and the Canadian government wanted to stake their claims to all of these lands for settlement by white farmers and for the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. But to accomplish that, the Canadians still had to deal with the many different indigenous nations. The Americans, who had similar plans, were simply waging wars of extermination on the Plains peoples. But Canada didn't really have an army. You know, if they had had a military, it seems like John A. Macdonald and politicians in the 1870s would have rather used their military to just simply take over. The goal of sending the Northwest Mounted Police wasn't to overpower and outmuscle Indigenous people, but rather use the force as a bit of a wedge into Indigenous communities to slowly but surely take over. And in the beginning, the relationship between the police and Indigenous people wasn't entirely antagonistic. As Canada and different First Nations were signing the numbered treaties, it was often the Mounties who were able to convince First Nation leaders to come to the table. The Mounties play a really important role in convincing Indigenous people to sign Treaty 7 in southern Alberta, where one of the officers, James McLeod, used his somewhat positive relationship with the Blackfoot in southern Alberta to convince leaders to sign on. We've already seen that many of the men who joined up were quite vicious racists. But of course, that wasn't everyone. Here's a clip from a 1964 interview with one of those first men who joined up with the Northwest Mounted Police. William Henry Walden, 106 years old, 
Born at Gravesend, England, he joined the Northwest Mounted Police in 1877, after four years trailing herds from Texas to the Canadian prairies. He now lives in Winnipeg, but still recalls comrades of those early police patrols from Wood Mountain to Prince Albert. They are mostly of all country births, English, Scotch, and Irish, you see. And they understood the British law, and they had the respect for their queen. Unlike many of his comrades who would have been out-and-out racists, Walden doesn't seem to harbor explicit prejudice against indigenous people. The Indians, in all, in all truth to them, they're about as good a person as any white man ever run across. But Walden says something incredibly revealing in this interview. There was no law. You had to coax them and let them see what law was. That was the hardest job. There was no law, but you had to try and coax them to be your friend because you were their enemy. Because you were stopping them from doing just as I wanted to do. See the point? The idea that the prairies were a lawless place just isn't true. It's Canada's law and order. And they were imposing that law and order on other indigenous nations who had their own legal systems and ways of dealing with justice. The peoples of the plains had laws. There was Ojibwe law and Assiniboine law and Cree law and Métis law. The Métis had a very robust legal system that had been codified in the time just before MacDonald sent in that marauding army. But of course, none of that mattered. The goal was for the Canadian government to be able to lay claim to the traditional lands that First Nations and Métis people had. And the police often played an important role in that. Take the case of Gilbert McMicken. He was the commissioner of the Dominion Police, which would eventually go on to merge with the Northwest Mounted Police to become the RCMP. And he also happened to be a Dominion land agent. It's nice that you gave him his official roles, but he was actually a spy. He was another one of those white supremacist guys who hated the Métis, and because he was given all these important offices, he was in a prime position to make sure that the land that was supposed to go to the Métis didn't get there. Under the Manitoba Act, which was the legislation that created the province, the Métis were supposed to be given over a million acres of land. McMicken made sure that that didn't happen, with land claims sometimes going on for seven or eight years before they were rejected. McMicken, though, was, I would say, one of the prime people responsible for the deliberate attempt by the federal government to dispossess the Métis of their land holdings and to undermine the Manitoba Act. This is just one of the many examples of the ways in which politicians, businessmen, and police all worked in tandem to take away First Nations and Métis lands and destroy their traditional ways of life. And one of the most effective weapons used to accomplish all of this was food. In the late 1870s, the bison herds that once roamed the plains died out, first slowly over time and then all at once. The plains peoples now faced mass starvation and were dependent upon the Canadian government for food rations. The balance of power had shifted decidedly in favor of the Canadian government, and they exploited that to profit off of the immiseration of the First Nations on the plains. 
police would ensure that First Nations stayed on their reserves. The government would then provide them with food rations from companies that had financial ties to senior bureaucrats and politicians. And if anyone got too restive, the Canadians would cut rations and send in more police. When Cree peoples settled in Cypress Hills in 1882, the Northwest Mounted Police forcibly removed them all, resulting in mass ethnic cleansing of southern Saskatchewan. And it's no coincidence that the Canadian Pacific Railroad path ran through Cypress Hills. A year later, the starvation rations provided to First Nations were cut even further, which led to some of the most horrifying scenes you can imagine. When an Assiniboine community fled its reserve in 1884 because the stench of dead bodies was so overwhelming, the police rounded them up and sent them back. That same year, at the Poundmaker Reserve in Treaty 6 territory, starving Cree tried to get into the local warehouse where the food was being hoarded. Northwest Mounted Police members protected the warehouse and actually used the sacks of uneaten food to fortify their position. By 1885, the situation would flare up into open war, and the Northwest Mounted Police would act as a military unit. That year, the Métis who had fled Manitoba and settled in Saskatchewan were once again having their rights stripped from them. And the Canadian government set up a company to buy up all of this land out from under the Métis. The company was full of political cronies, including John A. Macdonald's own son. It was a real pork barrel scheme. And so they came out there and they're backed up by the police. The Northwest Mounted Police are there to protect property, to protect the property of the white settlers. Eventually, this leads to an armed standoff between the Métis and the police at Duck Lake. So the first encounter is actually with the police, and it's at Duck Lake. And it starts out as a shouting match, right? Gabriel Dumas and his men are yelling at the police, right? And the Métis win that battle. The police go running for cover. The Battle of Duck Lake is one of the clearest examples of the paramilitary nature of the Mounties. They weren't sent in to maintain the law. They were going to war. But after they were humiliated by the Métis, the Canadian government sends in an actual militia to help the police. The Northwest Mounted Police worked in tandem with the Canadian militia in this force. They were separate forces, but there was overlap in their membership at times. By that point, you're not fighting the police anymore. You're fighting troops and an army. The Métis win another battle, but then at the Battle of Batoche, they are defeated. And in Batoche, it's really a battle of attrition. It's really about who's got more ammunition. And that's not a battle that the Métis could ever win. The Canadian forces win the war. Louis Riel, who had returned from exile in the United States to help lead his people, turned himself in, and he was hanged in a sham trial. It was a terrible loss for the Métis. They've never forgotten it. And it changed utterly the Northwest. If you think about it, all of these problems, they didn't need police. And that was the solution they always threw at it, was police, police, more police, more police. But the issue was land. It was entirely predictable, and I think that MacDonald 
and the police paved the way for what happened, and they reaped the sad results of Canada's, I think, very short-sighted and abominable theories. They murdered people. They murdered indigenous people. We were sacrificable. We could be thrown away all so that the corporate machine, this insatiable corporate machine, could have more land and more money. And even the tiny little bits of land that the Métis had, they couldn't keep. The Northwest resistance marked the end of any pretense of nation-to-nation relationships between Canada and the indigenous peoples of the Plains. All of a sudden, settler colonialism becomes much more brazen, right? They've gone to war, they've won. MacDonald basically sanctions the arrest and execution of some of the resistance's leaders, including most notably Louis Riel, in very questionable legal proceedings. You know, in explaining his objectives at the time, MacDonald wrote, and this is a quote, The executions of the Indians ought to convince the red man that the white man governs. That's Canada's first prime minister. And if indigenous nations were not convinced of this fact, the Northwest Mounted Police and and later the RCMP were there to enforce colonial control needed for Canada's continued capitalist development. So as a force, the Mounties, whether consciously or not, were being used as colonial agents that embodied and enforced Canada's colonial control, especially after the War of 1885. Before 1885, some of the leadership of the Northwest Mounted Police did lobby Ottawa for better treatment of Indigenous people, including increasing their rations. But the force was soon brought under the control of the Department of Indian Affairs. And from then on, the mask was totally off. This was an agency charged with controlling Indigenous peoples and ensuring colonization moved forward. So the RCMP worked in local communities quite closely with Indian agents to enforce that colonial control. They threatened violence, they controlled access to food and supplies, and even policed cultural ceremonies. Things like the Sundance on the prairies, uh, the potlatch on the West Coast, and Mounties, again, often had to enforce these measures, often trying to break up gatherings, and they used tactics of intimidation and harassment to force Indigenous people to follow government policy and accept smaller and smaller reserves over time. The Canadian government introduced something called the PASS system, which didn't allow First Nation people who lived on reserves to leave without written permission from the government. The idea was that if Indigenous people could freely move about, they would either A, compete in the markets where white farmers and small populations were trying to trying to emerge. And they also wanted to ensure that Indigenous communities uh, who had signed on to those treaties couldn't move about to talk with other communities saying, okay, well, are your treaty responsibilities being upheld? Because ours aren't, and maybe we should work together to resist colonization. The past system was entirely illegal. It was never legislated. And the police knew that. They even complained to the government that it was against the law. But they enforced it regardless. In 1902, a commission from South Africa came to Canada to study the past system. They would eventually use similar methods during apartheid. Mounties also acted as truant officers for residential schools, rounding up indigenous children and even kidnapping them from their families. 
Over the next few decades, hundreds of thousands of European settlers came to live in the prairies, and as the population changed, so did the mandate of the police. That story is best embodied by maybe the most influential Mountie of them all, Aylesworth Bowen Perry, better known as A.B. Perry. A.B. Perry was an inspector with the Northwest Mounted Police in the early 1880s. And during the Northwest Resistance, he was actually appointed a major in the Canadian militia, where he led the Alberta Field Force, and then went on to establish a number of Northwest Mounted Police posts throughout the West after the conflict. Perry was described by his contemporaries as handsome and possessing remarkable physical strength, and he eventually rose to be the commissioner of the Mounties. It's often said that the state has a monopoly on violence, and by the early 20th century, that monopoly is channeled largely through the Northwest Mounted Police. Then Perry is really the face of that kind of transition. And as I said, you know, he uses his position to advocate for assimilationist policies. Perry is the man who changed the Mounties from a colonial paramilitary into a national force that engaged in all kinds of shady activities, including spying and union busting. I mean, Perry was very much, you would call, an arch-imperialist. That's Steve Hewitt. He's a historian at the University of Birmingham who works on security and intelligence. Many of the new immigrants settling in the prairies came from Eastern and Southern Europe. And when World War I began, Perry was intensely suspicious of these newcomers. One of the most remarkable things is he wrote a piece where he effectively justified vigilantism against immigrant communities during World War I, that basically if they were attacked, they had it coming. So you just think this is one of the top law officers in the country condoning ethnic attacks because of the heated environment of World War I. Perry turned the Northwest Mounted Police into a full-on professionalized spy agency. I mean, how you would recruit informants and that, you know, if you were spying on a meeting of communists, it wasn't sufficient to have one informant. It was always better to have two informants at the meeting so you could then compare and contrast the two accounts of the meeting to, you know, test for accuracy. These are all things that Perry helped foster. Socialists, communists, and union leaders all became targets, especially if they came from ethnicities that were considered suspicious, like Finns, Jews, and Ukrainians. And as labor disputes roiled into strikes, the Mounties acted as the premier union-busting force. One of the selling points is the Mounties aren't unionized. But the key event is the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike, because during that strike, the, the city police go on strike as well. And so it's the amount of police that are deployed and famously help sort of break the strike. Shortly after the war, people are questioning whether or not the Northwest Mounted Police even need to continue to exist. By this time, the provinces all have their own forces. But A.B. Perry was able to convince the government to merge the force with the Dominion Police, a smaller national force responsible for Eastern Canada. And thus, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was formed. And in the years immediately afterwards, they gained more and more power. Within a decade, the RCMP is engaging in every kind of policing imaginable. They're the federal force and are invited back to be the provincial forces of many of the provinces. They do local crime fighting as well as surveillance on suspect communities. 
They're rounding up First Nations children to send them to residential schools, and they're shooting at unemployed workers protesting government policy like they did in Regina in 1935. They're doing it all. Which in some ways makes them a remarkably powerful institution, because if you think of a police force in the U.S. like the FBI, it operates just at the federal level. Right. So imagine the FBI not only as the federal police force, but also the state police force in a number of states and even city police force or community police force uh, across parts of the U.S. It, it just speaks to what a powerful institution the Mounties are, not only at, you know, at, in terms of the symbolism, but also in terms of having practical powers. So why does any of this history matter when we're thinking about the RCMP today? There's a continuity from 1873 to now. There's a real pattern here of the RCMP, other police and militarized forces in Canada being used as agents of settler colonialism. And the reason that this history matters is that if we don't want these injustices to continue to happen in Canada, we need to pretend that when they happen, that they're not some kind of crazy anomaly. We need to understand that the forces working in the ways that it was created. And if we're actually serious about reconciliation, then we need to reckon with the real history of how police and military forces have been used against Indigenous people. The site where Louis Riel and other indigenous leaders were hanged is today known as the Depot. It's where all RCMP officers coming from every corner of Canada are trained. You couldn't get a better symbol than that. The fact that that is where they hanged, probably without doubt, the most famous indigenous leader in this country. The RCMP still have the noose that they used to hang Jean Taillet's great-granduncle. It's on display in their museum, and they've trotted it around the country, too. So imagine a young cadet going in there and wandering through the display of the artifacts that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police think are important to display as evidence of their past prowess and their past wonderful exploits, and that's what it is. That's what you're getting from your first day of training. And all of that comes down through time and is embedded in our young police force as they come out of that academy. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission says you can't have reconciliation without truth. And if you're going to have truth, that means you've got to go back and confront your own history. But I don't see any signs that it is actually happening. I don't think the RCMP has changed one iota, and I don't think it will in the future. They throw money at the police and think that the police will solve the problem, and that's exactly what happened in 1885, and that's what we're doing today still. We're still doing the same thing. That's your episode of Commons for the week. If you want to support us, click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. 
This episode relied on work done by Gene Taillet, Steve Hewitt, Sean Carlton, James DeShuck, M. Goldhawk, Robert Alexander Innes, James R. Stevens, John L. Tobias, Jocelyn Thorpe, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Demi Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Andreas Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. <laughs>